listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. And welcome back to Score to Death, the podcast, the companion podcast to the book, Score to Death, conversations with some of horror's greatest composers. And its new sequel, Score to Death 2, more conversations with some of horror's greatest composers. You can order copies of these books on Amazon, from other book retailers, or from me directly at scoretodeath.com. Today's episode is very special. It was originally recorded as a virtual panel for the Salem Horror Fest 2020 and includes an all-star lineup of some amazing film music talent, such as Richard Band, Joseph Bashara, Holly Amber Church, Charlie Clouser, and Harry Manfredini. If you have yet to read either of the Score to Death books, this episode is a nice sampler. Joe and Harry are featured in the original book, and Richard, Holly, and Charlie have extensive interviews in the new Score to Death 2. So what you are about to hear is a fun taste of the kind of information you can find in my books. If you'd like to watch the video of this panel, it is available on the Score to Death YouTube page. And please follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Score to Death, to stay updated on the podcast, the books, appearances, and future panels like this one. Thank you for listening, and let's get started. We have, of course, Richard Band, who is... Known to horror fans for such great films as House on Sorority Row, Reanimator, From Beyond, Puppet Master, Troll, and the more recent Nightmare Cinema. Joseph Bashara, who, uh, of course, is the musical voice for the Insidious series, Conjuring, the Annabelle films, one of my personal favorites, Dark Skies, and uh, The Prodigy. We have Holly Amber Church, who fans affectionately call the Scream Queen of Scoring. <laughs> who some people may not know that Holly once thought she was a werewolf when she was little. <laughs> <laughs> and she scored such films as Ruin Me, The Toy Box, Mollywood, Dark Light, and Open 24 Hours. And we have Charlie Clouser, who has scored the Saw films, including Resident Evil, Extinction, the series Wayward Pines, and of course the upcoming Saw film Spiral, from the book of Saw, a uh, little tidbit about Charlie is that he used to practice drums to a Tony Randall album, the actor Tony Randall <laughs> singing Broadway tunes, <laughs> just the kind of trivia you can learn from score to death. And uh, last but not least, we have Harry Manfredini, who uh, of course is known for the Friday the 13th films, the house films, Swamp Thing, Deep Star Six, Wishmaster, and many other films. I've interviewed all, all of you for Scored to Death in one form or another, and one of the things that uh, we talk a lot about is what kind of makes the horror genre unique, uh, why you guys like scoring it, and one of the things that, uh, Holly, you said that you like about it is that you get to play with a lot of different uh, feelings and tones, because horror films get to explore all kinds of things like drama, sometimes even comedy and suspense. And I was just wondering if maybe you could start us off by talking a little bit about like that aspect of the horror genre and what you like about it. 
Yeah, that's that's one of the main things I like is that you get to, you know, stretch your legs in all kinds of different emotions in one film. There's drama, there's suspense, like you said, there's comedy, there's usually a lot of action. Um, obviously the horror, you get to play with different sounds, sometimes you get to be really quiet, sometimes you get to be really over the top, which is fun. So there's a lot of moving pieces to it and layers, and that's what I like about it. Yeah, I mean, for me, one of my, most of my favorite horror films end up like they're dramas, often they're family dramas, where there are, there are a lot of the Stephen King films, either like Cujo or even uh, Silver Bullet. These family dramas that just happen to be set in these horrific circumstances. And I think that's something that's easy to forget uh, when you're kind of, you know, getting into horror or people that aren't into horror don't realize the dramatic aspect of it. But one of the other things that we talk a lot about in the score to death films is uh, just film music in general and how it works. And Richard, you've always said that, you know, for you, music is like the third dimension of a two-dimensional medium. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I think, I think so. Um, I guess part of that is just the approach I usually like to take. Um, when I'm, when I'm looking at a film I'm spotting a film and all that, I'm, it, it's one thing for me, what you see visually on the film itself, accompanied by the dialogue. So that's one thing, that's the two dimensions we're seeing, we're seeing and we're hearing. But I think film scoring a lot of the time, or at least the approach that I like to take is, I like to look for what's underlying and behind the, what you're seeing and hearing on the screen. There's always, there are always subplots, sub-stories, uh, the, the things like, uh, what's driving the character or characters uh if you're if you're regardless whether it's hard or not if you're in a scene say a chase scene even it doesn't really matter yeah one way would be to score where you've got chase music going and all that you're you're not really adding to the two dimensions that are there already you're seeing the chase you know you're hearing the effects and whatever dialogue but maybe the approach you want to take uh, sometimes in scoring is what's what's driving that chase. Is it a character's mind driving it? Is it is it something else that's uh, that's driving? Is is the guy is the person in the chase maybe in love or something? There can be so many different approaches as to how you might score it, and that's kind of what I refer to as the third dimension. I try to I try to find out in the story and within the characters what is it that's driving the uh, that whole situation that's kind of what i referred to as the third dimension yeah well even when we talked about themes uh when i interviewed you we talked about puppet master and even just the idea of that theme for the movie kind of says so much more than one would expect about kind of uh, a movie about killer <laughs> puppets puppets yeah right yeah yeah well that's uh, again that uh, that was derived out of two elements. One um, was the period piece, uh, the period element of it. Uh, that whole idea started back with the puppeteer during the Nazi era in Germany and the puppeteer. So 
that's where the 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 three four waltz idea came in, and the sort of circusy-ish feel was born out of that. Uh, but the other dimension that I wanted to put into that theme was a sort of sadness. It was a smallness for the puppet. It was the 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 three four feel, but there had to be an element of sadness because after all, those puppets, even though they did evil things, they were in fact at once people who had been murdered and had been brought back to life in, in some way to exact revenge on evildoers. So actually, those puppets with uh, all 11 movies of them now, you know, they were they actually, the, the, in my mind, they were the good guys the whole yeah. time and still are. So yeah. how did, how does one get that across? And that's kind of the, was the impetus of, of the theme. Yeah. There are so many things that music does in film and, uh, you know, in all film and horror certainly has its own devices. And one of the things that has kind of come up on over, over and over again, when I've interviewed composers is this idea of, uh, music kind of taking the place of the character of or like the monster, you know, everybody, including everybody at home watching, you know, knows the Jaws theme and how that's symbolic of the shark when we don't see the shark. Uh, Joseph kind of used a similar uh, thing in Dark Skies because that's a, that's a film about aliens. So he used a lot of interesting tones and stuff. It's Suspiria, the whispering and the howling vocals is always giving us the sensibility that witches are always present, even though we don't see them. And of course, Harry, you did something, you know, very similar or exactly the same with Friday the 13th with with Jason. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the need for that. Um, you know, most horror fans know the story of, of where the. The, the vocal noises came from, but maybe you could go a little bit into why you, why you chose to do that and why it was important for that film. Uh, sure. I'd like to, uh, first of all, try to wrap my head around learning to play drums from a Tony Randall. Album. <laughs> <laughs> really having a hard time with that. We'll have to read score to death too. To hear more about that story. I, 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 I've been lying for it right now. Uh, Actually, you know, echoing uh, everything that's been said so far, uh, and especially the things that Richard has said, you know, film composition, whether it's horror, no matter what it is, I mean, you're really about 90% dramatist <laughs> and 10% composer. Uh, so the drama, the story, the character, all the things that, you know, Richard hit on earlier, that, that thing that can't be said, which is the music, it can't be, you can't say it. Those are the things that we, we really deal with more than, sometimes way more than the complexities of writing harmony or counterpoint or whatever. And there, there's, there's almost always a dramatic reason for what we write. And in the case of Friday, uh, there were two things there was a dramatic reason for that happening. And the fact, that was the fact that we never saw the killer until real nine. Uh, and so my, one of my jobs was, well, how the, how's the audience supposed to know 
when it's the killer and when it's the cameraman. I mean, they're both, we, we, we see both the same things. You know, it's a long shot or it's a, a panning shot, but is it the cameraman or is it the killer? So it, it was necessary for me to come up with something that said, oh no, this is the killer present. And the other decision that we made in Friday, uh, at least the original Friday, was that we were only going to have music for the killer. And if you watch that film, there's very little, there's actually very little, I think there's like 42 minutes of music in Friday the 13th, which for a horror film was like half, you know, it's, it's hardly anything. So what happened was, is that in, in the, especially in the case of Friday, the entire score became a character besides, you know, that. Uh, and so that was, you know, again, it's a dramatic reason for that happening. And, and also the, ob the, ob the idea is to make it as simple as possible. What could be simpler than, you know, and, you know, just certain, and uh, if you analyze the music of the film, uh, plug, chance for a plug here, uh, our friend Brian Satterwhite is, writing a book on the music to Friday the 13th. And I tried to explain to him that there's really like two harmonies and, and sort of a row and, and that's about it. And it's the same stuff. It was always the same so that it just became something that was, that was a character. But it, again, it's a dramatic reason. The idea of simplicity, uh, comes up often in yeah. horror films. Simplicity um, makes for understanding. It really helps. Yeah. Well, that's something that uh, I never really looked at it. I mean, I think there's many reasons why uh, simple uh, motifs or melodies seem to work in the genre. But in the case of Saw, Charlie, we talked a lot about how uh, the Q Hello Zep, there was a very uh, specific reason why you kind of had to kept Keep it simple. You called it like uh, <clears throat> not having too much information because of the the way it's used in that. And I think that goes a little bit to what Harry's saying. I certainly wish that I had uh, the opportunity to do more minimalist approaches than some of the the Saw movies are are typically have. You know, the the, the Saw movies kind of grew into this more equals more situation where every with every sequel, we were upping the ante both on screen with the elaborateness of the traps and the gore and so forth, but also just with the, the, the music was, you know, we'd already turned the knob up to 11 and can we find maybe an 11 and a half? But at least in the first one, and this is something that occurs sort of in all of the movies, it kind of is a trademark that there's always some sort of twist ending that's encompassed in a reveal montage at the end, which often has a voiceover. Um, and it's, it was most sort of perfectly executed in the first one, but they've done that in all the sequels where when the, the real villain is finally exposed at the end, then there's often a voiceover begins and you're cutting between uh, on screen shots of the, the primary character standing there with his jaw hanging open as the horrible truth is revealed and cutbacks to uh, previous scenes in the movie, but the parts that you didn't see 
earlier in the movie, like a different camera angle on who was actually setting the trap or uh, a little bit longer of a cut so that you can see the people entering the trap or whatever. And as such, there's a lot of, as you said, there's just a lot of information coming at the audience really quickly. They're keeping track of the, the voiceover, which is sort of explain the narration, which is explaining what, what the hell they're seeing. And they're also forced to kind of look at all these cutbacks and flashback scenes and uh, re-equate them with what they've already seen and realize and put it together in their mind that like, oh, that's the other side of the room and you couldn't see that the villain was actually hiding behind there, pulling the levers, which you didn't see earlier in the movie. And that, so there, as you said, there's a lot of information flying at the, at the audience in that last five to 10 minutes of the film. And that was why, you know, there's kind of two reasons to uh, the approach that I took on the first Saw movie in which kind of became the, the motif for the whole series. And one was that, yes, the, the music that comes in wants to be bold and strident and almost mechanically simplistic so that it doesn't require, as you said, too much attention to kind of uh, glom onto it. And there is a repetitive kind of hypnotic nature to it as new layers and new elements come in and it builds uh, to a horrific climax, but it's not um, overly sort of flowery and complex musically. And it's also sort of only three or four layers deep. And although new elements are introduced, they're not some crazy attention grabbing sound, some synth solo that sounds like it was played by R2-D2 or something. They're very sort of simplistic, familiar real world sounds like a hammered dulcimer is what starts it. And then some strident string quartet comes in and a few little glitchy percussion elements, but it's not the usual hailstorm of, of sonically interesting musical events that many of the other cues, like the more elaborate trap cues in the earlier in the movie would have. And so that, hopefully would let the audience sort of glom onto it at a, in a moment and understand the, be, be able to feel the thrust and the propulsion of that music cue without sort of getting distracted from paying attention to the visual flashbacks and the narration because they're like, oh, what's that interesting little bass sound trickling away in the background? You know, that I tried to re reduce those elements to their bare minimum, but the approach that was that we did in the first saw movie which became the the trademark was also that the score for the first one we wanted the entire score to sound like it was just underwater and just buried in fog and murk and very indistinct and with without any bright sounds and without any you know my visual metaphor was that it would be as as if you're watching uh, a fist fight from across a rainy darkened parking lot you know, you can see there's some guys over there and it looks like they're beating somebody up, but you can't really tell and their backs are to you. And so you're slow, as the movie goes on, you're slowly approaching them and it's becoming a little more clear what's going on. And then just at that crucial moment when the Hello Zep cue starts in the movie, it's as though the, the, the sun came out, all the lights get switched on and those guys that are beating somebody up just turned around and they're facing you now. And so it was this, we, we wanted a, there to be a, a distinct, sonic change where all the sounds in that Hello Zep cue are, very, are much drier and more upfront and strident 
than anything that was used elsewhere in the score, which just sort of sounds like somebody banging on a trash can on the other side of the, uh, yeah. of the room. And that helped to kind of really put a push pin in that moment in the movie. And like, this is when it all changes. This is when the lights come on and you're paying attention now. And that kind of became, it worked pretty well in the first one. And it kind of became the motif and the mode that we operated in throughout all of them. And even though the other movies got to the point of ridiculousness with some of the trap cues being these industrial music drum machine beat downs, there was still always an effort to kind of taper it all down to a thin little line, just one little icy blue piece of string. <laughs> and then the Hello Zep cue can begin and the sort of lights get switched on, hopefully in the audience's mind as well at that point. In all the films you guys have worked on, you guys are all masters of kind of atmosphere. And that's one of the things that, in a way, horror has that a lot of other genres don't. The way you set up atmosphere in films, Joe, is always something that I always take notice of. You have a really interesting, sometimes it feels almost uh, avant-garde way of using instrumentation. And uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that aspect of your scoring and and the importance of atmosphere and how does that stuff come to you when you're scoring these kind of supernatural films i kind of think of it as holding open a space where the events in the film can happen that's sort of and as richard and harry as you were talking earlier the, the word that i use for that is the intangible i call it the intangible because even when spotting you me sitting in a room and all talking about things and people are nodding like you know you're you know like you really understand what each other is but you have no idea what's happening truly in someone else's head you could be looking at one thing and seeing completely different things so it is really a matter of just getting clear with the the communication but i think a lot of that is the intangible the communication that's happening on other levels where you're picking up on things and intuiting things and really just the less you really think for me, I should say the less I, not you, I don't know what anyone else should do, but the less I think about things, it seems the more clear it is. So I try to stay out of my own way. And as far as you're saying, like, how does it come to me? I, I don't know how it comes to me. I don't, um, I think a lot of it is really being able to almost become a space that can incubate an idea. Sometimes it's not necessarily sitting and working on something where it's really, where it's really being solved. Something it's sometimes it's just digesting the information and then going and doing something else. And then when the time is right, it just, it'll, it'll just happen. It just seems that the less I try to force the process, the more effortlessly it sort of happens. And of course there's, there's tons of, of course there's work. There's tons of work. I'm not talking about the work part. That's that's a given. You're going to have to write, rewrite, add, take people's notes in, and all of that. But underneath all of that, I think there's it's it's really about the intangible, and I think that's what a big part of our role is is to provide that. There's exceptions to all the rules, but it seems that genre films and specifically horror films lend themselves uh, not just in terms of uh, to musical experimentation but sound uh like uh, 
when we spoke so many years ago, Joe, about Insidious, we talked about the Rust piano and how uh, this this came fell in, almost fell into your lap and how you used it. Um, maybe you could start us off by talking about the way, uh, like the obsession that you guys have with sound and how it's used in horror films and how you're not necessarily even using music in the traditional sense. Well, for, I mean, yeah, the rust piano is, uh, I, I think I'm actually going to get it delivered over here pretty soon. It's still, it's still kicking around, it's still out there. Um, and, uh, to follow it up, I ended up getting what I now call the cobweb piano. I got that on insidious two, which I still have. It's in, it's in my office in the other room. And that one is, uh, it was left at a hardware store for years outside filled with, cobwebs and Fred brought it over and blew it all out, cleaned it out enough because it was pretty filthy. But all these things just have a natural sound to them that you can't reproduce. So I think that's a big part of what we're looking for is identifiable, unique sounds that are true to themselves and aren't um, trying to mimic anything in particular. Just sort of, I mean, and, and for myself, how a lot of the sounds I'm looking for are it is just things that I'll just, I'll just start hearing it. And it's, and a lot of what I'm trying to do is through orchestration and other means is achieve what I'm hearing. And it's like, what is that? Is it, is, is it brass with one high string or where does it take place? What frequency range, what happens? And then a lot of, a lot of that has worked out um, for me before I even, before I even write anything, I like to spend a lot of time just digesting what is it I'm hearing and what I'm writing for. Otherwise, it's just like walking into a spice shop and when you're really just trying to make one specific thing and it's like, we don't need everything. Let's just see what is this. So reducing the sounds for me is a big part of working with them and identifying what types of sounds to work with and why within a specific score. And they don't really cross over. So I'm, I'm finding as I'm scoring for different things at the same time, the the languages really never cross over because they're the way I'm hearing them is different. So it's, I'm, I'm not naturally going to, it just wouldn't make sense to put, you know, to combine them in my own head. So it's a, uh, but yeah, just as far as chasing down sounds, it's just a matter of trying to, for me is looking for what I'm already hearing in a way. Holly, I know you've done a little bit of uh, finding things within the movie to then kind of play with uh, you, you kind of, indicated just kind of like for your own enjoyment, but they do add something distinctive to those scores, whether it's, you know, we talked about uh, the sounds of balloons or uh, for open 24 hours, you talked about how you kind of captured some of the sounds of the neon lights. Um, what can you tell us a little bit about your process in terms of finding these sounds or noises uh, for lack of a better term, and then kind of incorporating them into your scores? Yeah, I mean, it's pure nerd, pure nerdiness, I guess, you know, a lot of times people would have no idea that that's what it was. Sometimes I tell the director I did it and sometimes I don't. Um, but it's just finding something that's kind of fun. Um, like I did a killer clown movie and that was where the balloons came in. Um, and I just recorded them, all kinds of sounds, hitting them, stretching them, scraping them, you know, and then bring them into the, you know, the sequencer and manipulate them. And those became like percussion pads, stingers for the clowns, um, open 24 hours. I, I took some neon sound, same thing, kind of became paddy things or um, uh, 
you know, you can do all kinds of weird different things with them. And it's just, again, for me, it's just nerd, yeah. I guess. I don't know, <laughs> but fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, Charlie, you know, you and I talked uh, at length about this kind of odd obsession with sounds that you've had your entire life. And for people that haven't read Scored to Death 2 yet, uh, Charlie's been collecting sounds in multiple formats for decades and manages to find uses for them like uh, subway co- subways screeching into uh, the <laughs> 72nd Street stop in New York City and all that stuff. How uh, How does that kind of work for you in terms of musically when you're obviously a lot of these more industrial metal noises kind of suit them are are are, are fitting for the saw films but when you're watching uh the f- footage for the first time you know how do you decide you know which dental drill you're gonna <laughs> apply <laughs> to the traps well, and stuff like that you know i one mental one part of the mental process whether it's when picking what notes and chords to play or picking the sounds that are going to be used i i when i try to draw an analogy for someone i say it's it's mere it's usually a process of no 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 maybe (laughs) and that's the you know that's what's that's the little internal dialogue that's going on in my head as i flip through thousands of sounds or try out thousands of chords or whatever it may be. And to me, all, you know, I wouldn't uh, presume to say that I'm, you know, have uh, uh, even a mild case of synesthesia or anything, but sounds to me, even if it's just a single recording of, you know, the subway screeching into the, the subway station or the bowed metal instruments, they immediately have uh, a character, an emotional character, and even a sense of place to me just on first listen. And, you know, that's, uh, for example, on a movie like Resident Evil, where a lot of it took place out in the desert in a post-apocalyptic Las Vegas where the sand dunes have come over and, and there's, they're going to be battling hordes of genetically mutated zombies. And, there's a certain sound quality to, I mean, these were, you know, huge action cues with 18 wheelers driving through crowds of zombies and all that kind of stuff. And to me, it, it was very, it was a very easy decision to pick the sound, the, this palette of sounds because there are many types of sounds, which to me just sound like they're outdoors, big epic drums and those sort of things. When I'm, auditioning sounds and picking what the palette's going to be for a cue, like an outdoor broad daylight, middle of the desert zombie beatdown. Uh, it's fairly easy t- for me to say, no, these, this group of sounds doesn't sound like that place as opposed to something that might take place in a saw movie where it's a dimly lit dank abandoned factory bathroom with a flickering fluorescent light those sounds which worked well in an outdoor middle of the desert zombie beatdown are going to be completely inappropriate for a claustrophobic, dimly lit, dripping water, dank dungeon environment. So a lot of it, it's, that's never, it's never a challenge for me to decide whether a sound is right for one uh, place or another. 
it might be a little time consuming to find where the hell I left that sound <laughs> yeah. and find the one that I'm looking for. But to me, a lot of the process, a, a lot of what makes a sound or a piece of music work or not work is whether it sounds like the place that the action is occurring in on screen. And of course, as you know, as Harry and, and Richard alluded to, a lot of times you're wanting to evoke not what you were actually looking at on the screen, but what the character has gone through, perhaps in another part of the movie or in part of their backstory that's only been explained but not shown. So it's not a hard and fast rule, but a, a lot of what makes makes it easier for me to write the music is, of course, having the right sounds that feel like the place. And that's why so many of these sort of industrial bowed and scraped metal type textures work well in a in a saw movie because a lot of them take place in that sort of environment where there's some giant rusty wheel that's slowly turning as it's going to crush someone or whatever so those sounds being of a place doesn't take you doesn't sound out of place and take the viewer out of that weird and sophisticated visual world that the uh, filmmakers have worked so hard to construct on screen i want to be the the brother the stepbrother of that of that place in my sound and yeah. my music yeah richard you've talked to me about uh maybe it was mutant where you the you had the string players pl use thimbles to get unique sounds uh we also talked a lot about um you know the way you kind of musically uh sonically symbolize the machine and from beyond with synthesizers uh, you know, unfortunately, Bear McCreary wasn't able to come today. But one of the things that he said to me, uh, which is like the film kind of tells you what it, ne what it needs. Right. Well, I, I think the, in my opinion, at least the, the most famous uh, composer no longer with us who was in, incredibly inventive was Jerry Goldsmith when it comes to incredible unique sounds and manipulations of instruments and stuff. Uh, uh, I think he, I think he was the number one, uh, at, at those devices. I think, uh, uh, Bernard Herman in a different way, uh, as far as conglomerations of, of subgroups of instruments and what he did. But I think Jerry, Jerry is, uh, way, way up there. And like Charlie said, I, uh, when you're using unique sounds and stuff like that, the, it, the, it, the process has actually become more difficult these days because of the advent of all the plugins we use in our studios. I mean, you have millions upon millions of sounds. And so I would agree a little with Charlie that uh, a lot of the time it's saying no, no, no to everything until something hits you. And it does have to uh, very much, uh, it, it does have a lot to do with the character of what the film is and the locations and, uh, you know, whether it's a loud film, a quiet film, what, what's, what's going to mix with your music and what's not going to interfere. Um, I've always generally preferred using uh, organic elements, uh, i.e., like, well, like the thimble, situation that I used on mutant. I wanted a certain slidiness sound that I 
that I just couldn't find. Uh, it was in my head. And so I had this idea one day to, to uh, uh, I brought a person, a string player friend over and, and I had a thimble. I just wanted him to try something. And at first I hated it, but then I said, you know what, what if like 50 string players are doing this? You know, that might have a whole different feel. And so I just got it in my mind and I really didn't know what it was ultimately going to sound like until I arrived in London. I, at that point I scored in London with the National Philharmonic over there. And I must have spent like over $500 on thimbles, maybe even a thousand. I mean, they're, they're thimble, a good thimble is expensive, you know, and it's got to be the right one. You can't have a plastic thimble. It's just got to be the right proper steel and all of that to get the effect. So I spent whatever, $500,000 on the thimbles, brought it over there. And I really liked the, the uh, of course, all the string players thought I was nuts, right? But uh, the, once they tried it out and everybody was here and everybody got into it and all that, and goddamn string player, they stole 90% of my thimbles, so I never even got it back. Anyway, but it was a cool sound, right? <laughs> so, it, I mean, that's the thimble story, but it's, it's yeah, it's, I, I like to try to find effects through more acoustic means, not unlike what anybody else is doing. Um, it's really, a, for me, a matter of, uh, it, it has to meld with what you're, what you're writing. It has to have a, it has to have a reason. To, everything has to have a reason, you know? We're, we're musical illustrators in a sense, right? We're illustrating not only what's up there, but like we talked about in the beginning, what's driving things and all that. That's why Jerry was so great. I mean, he used it in a musical way that was so uh, perfect, you know, with, with, the, uh, uh, with the topic that he was writing for. That's, yeah. that's, it's got to fit organically for me. Yeah. <clears throat> Harry, you can well, answer the question, but that was... <laughs> it was a good answer. No matter what question it was. Answer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Harry, you and Richard, uh, kind of your career started during that kind of transitional period of when synth technology was becoming more used in cinema. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about <clears throat> how the industry changed through the eighties. And you've also talked to me about how you kind of mark each uh, Friday the 13th score with like what piece of a new equipment you had at the time as you were going through. So I was hoping you could just talk a little bit about that period of when you were scoring and how technology kind of changed the process. Sure. Uh, I just wanted to tie a couple things together because we're, we're all, we're all kind of saying the same thing, but we're all saying it in a different way. Yeah. And, uh, talking about technology and, uh, Richard and I starting, I think it was right after the uh, Ulysses S. Grant administration, we started uh, writing film scores, of course. A little, little bit earlier. Yeah, a little earlier than that. <laughs> trouble earlier. was, there wasn't any film yet, but we had the scores <laughs> ready to go. They were still using, uh, they were still melting glue onto onto what was film at that point. Right. We had that great wire recording. Right. Uh, anyway, but you know, when you, when you think about it, and again, this is echoing what everyone says, and it occurs more in horror films than anywhere else, because basically in a horror film, all bets are off. You can write, you can write whatever the hell you want. You don't have to be in a key. You don't have to have a chord progression. You might, you might be at a key, you might have chord progression, uh, but you basically are sitting down and saying, I can make any sound I want. 
do you know how how daunting I can make any sound I want is? <laughs> you know, you know whether it's the sound of a, a train pulling into a station or somebody playing violin with thimbles on, or uh, just it's just literally anything. So the you know what Joe says, he's sitting there and he's honing he's honing it, it down from any sound I want to a sound that sort of sounds like this. Or in the case of Holly, where she goes, wow, this is a wacky sound on this balloon or something. And you go like, I could, pro I could probably do something with that. You know, so that we're always sensitive to those sounds and, and we try to organize them and, and filter them down, as Joe was saying, into something we can use. Richard with the idea with the thimble. Uh, and <laughs> I love Charlie's. Where did I put that sound? I know I had it somewhere. It's you know, uh, we you know we're all we're all doing the same thing. And uh, so that that was that was one of the things that, in fact, you know, uh, in listening to everybody, we're all saying the same thing, but we're all coming at it from uh, different different ways. So anyway, going back to since uh, the question you asked, uh, I got lucky on Friday because they sp spread them out far enough so that every time we had to do one, somehow or other, I bought a new piece of gear. And uh, if there's anything that I like doing is like taking any piece of gear and just trying to find out the craziest stuff on that uh, piece of gear, uh, whether it's a D, when, when I first started out, like the DX7 was like, ooh, a DX7, wow. You know, and then just try to find out like how many, when you think about how many things you could do with just that, uh, you know, kind of uh, processing, and then now sampling and, and things like that. So every Friday allowed me to get a new piece of gear, and I thought, ooh, I can work that into what I'm doing. I could use this into what I'm doing, uh, and and just the last thing because I, I I I like hearing everybody talk is that one of the things and Richard mentions Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, one of the brilliant things that Jerry did was the way he could mix orchestration of what would be regular orchestra and suddenly obscure percussion and strange ways of. You know, I mean, we all know now because they're, they, but what if, when we first heard him, we went, wow, what the hell is that? Oh, he took a gong and he, he bowed it and then dipped it into a, a bucket of water. I mean, like, all right, come on, you know, we're back to, you know, the balloons and toys and, and train stations. Jerry, Jerry took those kinds of things and worked them into the orchestration just because there was a strange sonority in the string in the strings whether they were playing with thimbles or uh you know uh maybe beyond uh, you know close to the bridge uh, or be behind the bridge you know all those kinds of sounds i i told you one of my favorite friday stories was uh, uh i said the engineer i said well tomorrow we're going to do uh, all the piano stuff and he goes okay great so i show up at like 10 o'clock and so he says, okay. I said, okay, uh, Q1M3 uh, bar 54, 
Uh, okay, so this guy gets the Q bar 54, B3, and I reach into the piano and grab a bunch of strings and just and, and, and grab them. And then the next cue, I take a timpani mallet and a blanket that I'm whacking the bottom strings, you know, and he's in there laughing. And then I'm going, what's so funny? And he goes, I had that piano tuned at eight o'clock in the morning and you're beating, you're hitting it with things and plucking on it. You're doing, you're doing everything but playing it. Well, I said, well, I am playing it, sort of, you know. Anyway, back to you guys. <laughs> I think that I think what Terry is saying, well, we're all saying is very important. And again, getting back to the, uh, what I like to call the organic nature of creating these sounds and on that's, we were talking about Jerry Goldsmith and how he was great at it. I think it's, I think it's so important. I mean, that's, it's not to discount the fact that you know, in, in those days, people had not only, you know, some of the time to do these experiments, but they, somebody like Jerry, you know, you know he did have an orchestra, you know, he, there, there were budgets, you know, for movies, you know, and so that made a difference. It's, it is a lot harder today, especially with COVID right now, to go out and start experimenting uh, with sounds out in nature or, you know, go into a crowd to get sounds, you know, it's a little more little more difficult uh, both financially as well as uh, health-wise right now so we do have to rely on gadgets and so forth and so on but again it, it all comes down to uh, it all it all comes down to the drama what are you, what are you you're trying to say what can't be said whether you know it's it's the room or Joe says it's a feeling uh, she's uh, Holly says it's you know, we got it's the balloon. It's the balloon, Holly. We got killing, <laughs> killing clowns from outer space. What the hell does that sound like? Well, why can't it, you know, balloons, you know, crazy stuff. So it, it makes sense. But we're, but the whole thing comes down to manipulating the audience, making the audience feel what the director and the writer and the camera people and all these people, what they're trying to, to feel. Yeah. And, and making them feel it too, because when oh, you yeah. write something, they oh, go, yes. like, "Oh yeah, you know that's it." What doesn't happen a lot in America is that uh, the the composer doesn't typically come on very early in the process. Uh, talking to some European composers, that seems to be more commonplace there. But here, sometimes it's last minute. Like you know, I know Richard's done scores with two weeks left to go. Uh, but Joe, I know you've you you've had the luxury of being able to spend time on set. You've also played creatures within the movie. Uh, I would imagine that that aspect uh, of of your involvement in the film guides the inspiration for music in in a way that's different than you know coming on in post production with six weeks left or whatever. And I also have a question because. Uh, uh, a mutual friend, someone that you introduced me to, Judson, once told me, and I always wondered if this was true, that sometimes that you've actually slept on the set to kind of get a sleep. Well, okay. <laughs> so I wanted to know if that was actually true. I I didn't I, I did say very late, but I didn't sleep there. I went <laughs> I went home eventually. But um yeah, it definitely does not seem common, but I just kind of 
it seemed to, to my own path seemed to grow very naturally for me. I started spending time on set because I was working with friends who are filmmakers and that's just what you did. And we're just, I, I, I don't work in horror movies by accident, as you know, um, I, 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 I just have always very much loved them. So getting to be on set, that is where I wanted to be is to be on set and specifically to be with the makeup artists watching that whole process happen. And that's just, that's just what I would want to do anyways, let alone professionally. So that became, um, what what drove me in those areas so then as other as other friends would be making films and i'd have access to the sets so of of course that's where i'm going to want to be and there's there's a lot of information to be gained by being on set and just absorbing especially if it's just the i mean the energy of the place is something that is it's palpable you can certainly feel it and being on being there when it just with everything is you're picking up so much information on other levels, even just uh, just subtle interactions between an actor and a director will tell you so much about how they're getting to where they're going and the underlying themes and ideas and all of these things that are, that somehow it, it all comes through. It may, it, it may be, it, it may be a very subtle story point or it may be, you know, the overt theme of the film, but you can really feel all that stuff on set. So, it's been helpful for me and then sonically as well, just to be able to to hear what like a creaky old house sounds like or to spend time like on the um I I didn't get to spend the night in the in the Warren Museum, the actual, the real one. I went to visit it. Well, um after after the shoot, I ended up going straight up there and got to check out the Warren's Museum in Monroe and had dinner with Lorraine and Tony, Lorraine Ward there which was super cool just to get to really just, this is what they're talking about. So just to really get a sense and feel like, who are these people? What's going on here? What does this place actually feel like? And these things and see the Annabelle doll and this, oh, this is what you're talking about, this doll. Okay, let's check this out. Let's just be there with that. Um, later on, on the last Annabelle film, I didn't I didn't sleep on set as just as Judson thought, but I did, stay, I, I did go, I did get to go spend a couple of nights after shooting. Um, the first night was quite fun because it was pouring rain, pretty chilly, and just security had to drive me over there and let me in and show me how to let myself out because I'd get locked in once I got in. All the lights are off except the lights that kind of go on as you walk around. But um, just to get to sit on there on the Warren Museum set by myself with no one around, my music paper and the script, because I do like to start writing early. I'll start as early as I can. I've also gotten the later, I've had the quick ones where go or mixing in three weeks. I've had that, but I've also, um, if I had the choice, it's it's lovely to be able to really digest the information and just feel it and be able to just let it let it happen. Just, just again, just let myself, just get myself out of the way and just let it happen is the... Um, well, I like to wait two days before the session, personally. <laughs> go for it. You just say, ah, gotta, I gotta, gotta get it done, you know, just so I right. a day or two before the session. And that's good. But, uh, but at that point, you know what you need to write, though. You're not, that's you're, true. You're, you, know, been, you know exactly what you need. It's been uh, all, it's been up there. It's just had a hard time coming out and then boom. Yeah. Right. Totally get that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Harry, I know that you have expressed, um, 
that you don't really like to read the script because you like to see how the film and the scares, like how you're affected by the actual film. And you, you kind of almost indicate that, you know, if you know it's coming, then you're not going to have that reaction. Right. You only get one, you only get one shot at seeing it the first time. And even reading the script, especially if it's fairly recent from the time you're going to see the film, uh, there's nothing worse than knowing there's, some guy behind the door who's going to come out and, you know, wreak havoc. But the problem is, is that the audience is only going to see it one time. And I mean, I'm sure it's scary. And, and, and I understand that it's scary. But if I don't know what's going to happen, what's going to happen? Uh, that's what the audience is going to feel. And I want to try to get that feeling into myself and you can only do it not knowing what's going on and just try and, you know, be as intense as you can in watching the film. And, and you get an idea of what's working and what isn't working. Sometimes scares uh, need more help. Sometimes they don't need, sometimes it's like better to get the hell out of the way and, and let the scare work or, or else if it's, uh, you know, like maybe it's a, uh, a fake scare, a phony scare. Uh, sometimes, you, you know, you really want to work everybody up into, into something and then let them out, and then hit them. We're back to being a dramatist again. Yeah. You know, it's oh, it always comes down to that. And uh, I, I wanted to go back to a question that I didn't answer when you asked me, and I think it was about uh, the dreaded temp score. Okay. I'm looking at I was actually, I was, I was, I'm looking at I was, I was fearful oh, to, oh, no. to start talking about temp scores because I know some of you have very uh, strong feelings about them. Well, see, I, I'm one, I am one uh, that it doesn't bother that much, uh, especially if, especially if it's a good one. Uh, but, uh, you know, and then there's temp love. Uh, that's another problem. And then there's temp marriage. And there's it gets temp divorce too. Sometimes temp divorce, yeah. But oftentimes the director can't speak to you in a musical way, and he just doesn't know. You know, uh, I think I think we need a cello here, and I always go, well, "That's an interesting idea. What? Uh, give me, tell me what a cello sounds like." because uh, they don't know, they happen to know the word cello, you know, and so they're not really sure. So if they put a piece in that somewhat feels right to them, then you get a good idea, at least a bag of where you can be. Uh, sometimes, however, they fall in love with it. And I've walked from films, uh, I, I've walked from two films where the guy had a temp score a, that I thought was wrong, and it was just impossible to do. Uh, it was like a 200-piece orchestra overlapped and 12 trombones and stuff like that. And, and, and he wanted me to do it in a room on a bunch of machines. And uh, I just, I said, you know, look, I, I, he paid me ahead of time and stuff. And I said, look, I'm going to give you your money back because... I don't think I can do what you want. Uh, and nothing ever happened with the picture, but 
you know, I, I'm okay with temp scores, as uh, especially uh, because it's a chance for the director or their producer to say, this is kind of like what we like. And of course, unfortunately, you walk in and it's, uh, I walked into a movie one time, the, the first cue was the opening credits to Total Recall, Jerry Goldsmith, followed by uh, RoboCop. And every cue was just this gigantic piece of music. And, you know, I had, I had the lunch budget on, uh, on uh, Total Recall as my budget. <laughs> Anyway, all right, you guys, take it from me. That lunch budget was catered, by the way, so that's how <laughs> it really was. Holly, you know, since your career started kind of in the era of, you know, digital editing and, and after, how do you, I'm, you know, you've all dealt with uh, temp scores, but you've also had the benefit of working with a lot of the same filmmakers over and over again. How, mm -hmm. how is the, what are your feelings on the temp score? Uh, well, it does depend on who you work with, because there's some people who will get married to it. And then there's other people who like it for inspiration, but they trust you and they let you do your own thing. Um, sometimes <laughs> like, yay, I know a miracle. <laughs> uh, if it's people I've worked with before, like they know and I'll say, OK, I'll watch it one time with your temp, you know, and I'll tell them if there's anything you love, um, you can send it to me. You know, if there's any little section that you love, fine. But like, I don't want to hear it again. Um, and one thing that I found that seems to work really well is if I ask the filmmaker to send me like maybe a Spotify playlist of inspiration. So they'll send me music that's sort of the vibe for their film that they like, but it's not in the picture, you know, and I found that that's a good way to get on the same page and get an, a sense of what they like, but without them cutting it into the film and falling in love with it, you know, and without me you know, because we're all musical, like once you hear it and see it, like we're going to remember it, you know, so it's a good way to have a clean slate, but have an idea of what they like. Sure. Um, yeah. So I found that that works really well. What about uh, the script? Like where, where do you, you know, like Harry doesn't necessarily want to read the script. Joe likes to come on early. In a, in a, horror, in a horror film only. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I like the script, yeah. But I actually liked what Harry said. I was like, oh, it would be kind of cool to watch it for the first time and experience it. But I'm I'm someone who likes to digest it and think about things ahead of time as much as I can. Because I feel like, I don't know, for me, a lot of the times when I get the movie, it's like, you have three weeks, go, you know? <laughs> yeah. So if I, I'm prepared for that, I guess. So it's good to get the script if I can. Yeah. So Charlie's kind of carved out his own uh, niche in terms of, uh, he's the guy that you come to for something very specific that isn't necessarily orchestral in the, in the traditional sense, but uh, the rest of you, you know, are, are still doing kind of orchestral scores in the day, in the era of, you know, synthesizers and, and computers and budgets that don't necessarily allow for it. Um, Richard, I know like, you know, one of my favorite scores of yours is uh, House of Sorority Row, which is a legitimate, lush, giant orchestra. But yet, you know, you've skillfully, even back in the 80s, started to kind of uh, do symphonic scores with technology that was still not even quite there yet, and very successfully with things like prison. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that kind of the struggle of using traditional symphonic sounds 
with budgets and in an era where that doesn't necessarily happen very much anymore. Okay, yeah. For the uh, all the 80s and early 90s, you know, I had the luxury of working primarily with nice size orchestras and all that. Uh, but I started seeing the writing on the wall as synthesizers and samplers started coming in. And so I started to slowly learn about them and integrate them. So I don't know, maybe I'm partially at fault for the industry going in the direction it went. Damn no. you, Richard. It's all my fault. I am sorry. <laughs> One thing I really enjoy that I started doing later on in the uh, in the early 90s and, and forward, I was very early on integrating the two of them. So um, like, like from beyond as a, as one example, that was a all a real string section and a real percussion. But that's all it was. Uh, the rest were uh, synthesizers and bells and things like that, and it worked out very nicely. And I I made that. That was one of the very first ones that I did. That was a real combination of the two, and I started doing that more and more as budgets went further down and down and down, um, always hoping to uh, go back to large orchestras, which happened you know, few and far be- between and rarely happen now, uh, you know, unless you've you know, got a multi-million dollar movie. And, uh, well, we all know that story, so there's so few of them right now. Um, so that integration was, was, it was born out of necessity. That's the bottom line. Uh, it, it, but it's something that can be done nicely. I think what people on the outside, producers and just people on the outside, don't realize that to, to do it well is a pain in the ass. It's not something you sit down and you hold an, a note down and it happens by itself. To make it, things sound realistic, and everybody on this panel knows, it takes a lot of work to do. Uh, I would, if I had my choice i would probably go back to the years where i had a piano a pencil a good eraser music paper and the newtson book i'd probably chuck it all if i could uh because now i've got to be an engineer a mixer this or that everything and it's it's it is a lot more difficult but if you are going to be doing these integrations um they're they're time they're time consuming and uh in my case, I do all the performing myself. So I'm the percussionist, I'm the violinist, I'm everything. Yeah. And it's difficult. But if it's done well, it's a, it's a nice way to work, especially if you can integrate with real instruments. Um, sampling has gotten so much better over, over the years. It's like crazy now. Uh, I think it's even going to get better in the short term. And... Uh, I don't know what to say. I, I, I still wish we could go back to the, the old days. <laughs> what can I say? That, yeah, that, would, yeah. that would be my wish, but it ain't happening. So yeah, yeah. We, got to, we have to learn what we need to to deal with this technology. Sure. Uh, one of the things about the horror genre is it seems to be the genre of sequels. And, you know, Richard, you've scored multiple sequels for a few different series. Uh, for Harry, of course, you've scored scored something like nine Friday the 13th. Joe, you've done multiple films in different series. Uh, I was trying to see if there was an actual statistic. I, I, I wonder if Charlie, if you're the one that has scored the most consecutive 
sequels with was it a nine nine saws now in a row nine in a row i mean it was seven in a row one every year for seven straight years and then uh a little bit of a break and then the eighth one and now this is nine and i hope they don't take their foot off the gas until we get to at least 10 it's a nice (laughs) round number (laughs) yeah but you've also scored uh, several television series. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about being able to explore kind of a, a musical language or a palette over several different uh, uh, episodes or, or films in a series. Can you just talk a little bit about how, you know, uh, working in, with, in a series and working in sequels is, is how it differs and, and what, what are the, some of the things you get to do that are different? you know, on a series of movies and sequels or on a television series, you do have certain themes and motifs that you can refer back to when the storyline calls for it. And like, I don't reuse any pieces of music per se, other than the endless reinterpretation and remix versions of the Hello Zep theme from the Saw movies, but there are little musical molecules, little, you know, four bars worth of a chord progression and a rhythmic pattern to how a little string set of chords may get articulated that, at least in my mind, become associated with a character or a storyline or a place and that can then be referred to later, even if it's not that same character on screen, but let's say it's you know, in the case of a Saw movie, it might be the new detective who is now filling the role, taken over, taking over for the detective who was killed three movies ago. But he, you know, I had a theme in the Saw movie, which I internally called the Feds theme. Like, that's the federal agent's theme. It was just a very simple little musical motif, but it kind of had a, it was different to the rest of the score, and it had an uh, uh, almost a, a business-like or official feel to it. Uh, compared to all the murky mayhem that was occurring elsewhere in the movies. So when that little musical motif occurred, it kind of took you out of the, the frame of mind of the, the suffering victims. And now you're on the other side of, of the glass and you're, now you're peeling back the layers and you're going to get to the bottom of this thing. And that little motif appeared first, I think, in the second Saw movie, uh, when we first started seeing some of the detectives' point of views. And made its little appearances throughout all of them, not as a reuse of the piece of music, but as a re-referring to the tempo and the pace and the way in which this set of five or six chords appeared. And that's much more camouflaged and less overt than you're able to and allowed to do and forced to do in a weekly TV series where you, you know, it can get to an extreme level as it did on the the tv series that i scored for many years called numbers which was a semi-traditional sort of uh, fbi procedural crime drama these shows were absolutely wallpapered with score 100 percent coverage you know somehow i would deliver 44 minutes of score for a 42 minute episode (laughs) um and so having that familiarity approach and a sort of an, an arc and a, a, a mode which the, the score as a whole for an episode followed every week let these, uh, these you know, elaborate dialogue-based 
TV series be digested and understood by the audience without like distracting them in the, in a similar manner to not wanting to distract too much with a, with a simple mechanical sounding cue in a Shaw movie. Um, but I actually, you know, I've been asked, do I prefer films or TV? And I can't, I would not want to give up one for the other because they both are, are ref- each is a refreshing change from the other way of working, yeah. you know? And uh, so I kind of, and a, a series like Wayward Pines was a nice in-between. It wasn't just another sort of weekly CBS FBI procedural crime show. It had elements from supernatural and zombie movies and horror movies and science fiction. So it was a nice mixture of stuff and was a a little bit more elaborate and challenging than a quote ordinary TV show would have been and was a lot of fun to develop as the, as the series went on. Sure. I mean, something that you were talking about kind of reminds me of something that uh, you told me once, Joe, which is you referred to, uh, kind of working on sequels as you're getting to kind of explore a different dialect of a uh, existing language already. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you approach, you know, the insidious and the conjuring and, and those, and then even kind of like the offshoots of like, you know, like Annabelle, which is still kind of in that universe of the conjuring, but exploring, you know, different parts of the story. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, that's, that is about as clear as I can put it. It's, it seems like there's, uh, with, with the first film of, of any of these series, the, the language sort of becomes established, at least for that film. It's not necessarily, you know, it, it's only so because you say it so, and it gets all these associations joined. And then, especially for the filmmakers, once those are joined, it's, they're joined. They're not, you know, that's, that's it. That's that. It's very difficult to, to pull that apart. And then to venture into the sequels where it still takes place in the same world, but there's a different doorway open. It's not necessarily the same. And it's usually for me, it just seems to, again, it's as I start, the more I start talking about this, I can already feel I'm starting to talk gets a little bit more vague and the intangible is coming out. But like for the, um, like for the conjuring in particular, the way the, the vo- James is, and I know Charlie, you've, you've, you've worked with James as well. And he's ex- so clear at explaining things sometimes. It's almost like he's just psychically beaming <clears throat> the scene into your head as we're talking about it. So it's um, my experience working with him when we were, I remember clearly we were on set for the, we were at lunch on the first conjuring talking about, um, we're just talking about the film and as the, as he'll be explaining a scene to me, I'll just, I'll just start hearing it and I'll exp- tell him what yeah, I'm, I'm hearing this. And he's like, yeah, 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 that's, that's, that's it. And then, and then it's like, and then you've almost already, the decision's made. Then you just have to sort of go do it. It's like, if you're trying to decide what color to paint a house, once you know the color, then all right, next, next topic, you know, you're, 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 you're onto that. And then it's almost like you're saving yourself also from having to get into the specifics of of a musical language with someone who may not necessarily, as you're like as you were saying, Harry, may not necessarily have the musical language to communicate to you. So rather than trying to, rather than even putting them in a position to say what does the cello sound like, I'd rather just tell them what I'm hearing and get some feedback and go, and then just like move on. We don't, I, I, we don't need to. But then again, some people, you know, I've had I've had the up other experiences as well where people can be very clear about me about instruments and what they're hearing and why and where. And if that's and if that's the case, then 
it's it's almost refreshing in a way. It's nice to be able to to get that kind of feedback. And then as as it spins off into <clears throat> from a sequel into a spin-off where it's characters and things, but it's still of the world, but not necessarily that world. It's it it's still when it comes down to it for me, it's it's the same thing. It's like it's it takes place in that world, but it's it's not the same. It's a different there's a different energy behind it. From the the, the first conjuring for me, the 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 entity the evil in the film was this it was a very it was a very female driven energy the second one was a very male energy and that just manifested into uh, an all-male low vocal choir as opposed to using you know or working with diamond Galas in the first film and just having they and they they don't really cross over it wouldn't make sense to have one be the language of the next but if the overall template you know, we're all completely new, then it wouldn't even be of the world. So it's, it's just, it, it's being able to work with the, the same motives, but really almost play with the orchestration more and just color things differently. I love it. It's super rewarding. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we're kind of running out of time. This has been so much fun. I kind of, uh, kind of lost track. Uh, I guess in closing, we should just talk a little bit about what is it about horror film music that kind of seems to strike a chord, no pun intended, for fans in that, you know, there's record labels releasing horror film scores. And why is horror film music kind of uh, popular in a way that perhaps other styles of film music aren't? Uh, how do you want to start us off? Well, yeah, I think it probably starts with horror fans. You know, I don't know drama fans that go to conventions <laughs> every year and collect drama toys, and, you know. So I would say it kind of boils down to that. First of all, there's a big fan base for it and they like collecting things. And, um, the, you know, it's a group. Uh, I feel like it's kind of a family and everyone bonds over it and they love the movie. So they're going to love the music, you know. Um, and the music is, it's really fun. So yeah, I, I would say it starts with the fans. Thank you, yeah. fans. <laughs> Harry, what do you think? You think there's something about the music specifically? Yes, I think there is something about the music specifically. Music in horror films is so tied, we're back to the damn word drama again, and the story and the characters. It's so tied to that, that someone who will just go back and listen to the score can almost relive the visual and the feelings that they had when they actually saw the film. And uh, to echo Holly, uh, there's nothing like horror fans. They are, they're just, they're just phenomenal. There's a funny thing, uh, it's not the, uh, but uh, Joe and Richard and myself and uh, Chris Young and, uh, Joel Duca and uh, uh, Don Peak, we we have this meeting called the Decomposers Meeting, and we all have dinner and sit and talk. And I remember I asked uh, Chris Young, I says, "Do you think that somewhere in town there's six uh, romantic comedy composers sitting around having dinner?" And we're all going like, "No, because <laughs> we're because we are different. We are different. We have we have a, just a different. We understand." Uh, for that, that anyway, that's my two cents. Yeah, Charlie, what do you think about horror and and, and the music that seems to connect 
with audiences in a specific way? Well, I think it's, you know, as, as Harry was getting to it, it's so much of the time the, a piece of music is associated with a character and in, in a very, very strong and identifiable way that within, you know, the first bar of hearing the theme or the, you know, the villain's theme, whatever it may be, the, the, the viewer remembers, they can even tell which of the nine sequels it was from sometimes. And so the same, for the same way they might collect the uh, action figures of, you know, Freddy or Jason or Jigsaw or whatever, they are, that they are more likely to be equally fanatical about the music because it's so tightly linked in their mind, if we succeed at our mission, to the character that they have such fond memories of being scared shitless about. So I think it's, you know, very much um, character driven and that the, the, the themes, the musical themes are associated with, uh, with their favorite bad guy, their favorite villain. Um, and that that works hand in hand with the sort of, uh, counterculture obsessive fandom or whatever, as Holly was mentioning, uh, that, that horror fans seem to engage in, in a way that's a little more, uh, extreme and specific and dedicated than your average, you know, fan of uh, Christopher Nolan's movies or whatever. Yeah. That they don't, they don't have, uh, you know, they don't have as many action figures from Christopher Nolan movies as they do from <laughs> the movies that we're talking about here, yeah. other than Batman maybe, but yeah. uh, I don't know if the Tenet action figure <laughs> series has been released yet. <laughs> Richard, do you think it has something to do with uh, some of the stuff we talked about earlier with uh, horror being a place where you can experiment with sounds and, and, you know, kind of attack music in a different way. Does that, do you think maybe that makes it more exciting or interesting to an audience? Or do you think it's, it's really what we've all been saying, which is that, you know, it connects the audience to the, to the story. No, I, I think this is strictly an audience based phenomenon. I mean, look, you, you go to, uh, you go to Comic-Con, right. And, there, uh, the one that I went to a few years ago, there was something like four, I think it was just under 400,000 people. I mean, insane. And then we as composers, some of us have gone and done some of these conventions over the years, and there's over the course of a weekend, on the small ones, you know, eight, 10,000, on the bigger ones, 40, 50,000 people. These are fans i never really realized this till i started doing some of those i mean the fan base is it's off the charts i don't know what drives them all to be totally honest with you i mean it's but it's alive and well and growing that's what i can say it's uh, i don't know what or they're tapping into or from a psychological standpoint or whatever i could take a lot of guesses um but I think it would be meaningless. I think I think what what we do as as composers as well as decomposers, I think what we do is simply um, help them on their journey to experiment with whatever they're experimenting with in their lives. It gives them 
an escape on some level, but they, I, I just, I'm constantly blown away by the level of fandom that exists out there for what we do. It's, it's, it's boggling. And like I said, it's growing. It's, it's just growing every year. I can't really talk to why. <laughs> well, why, Joe, why you know? well, Joe, Joe, maybe Joe knows. Yeah. <laughs> Joe's our resident horror fan here who yeah, grew up listening to, uh, Zom, uh, you know, Fabio Fritzi and Goblin, just like I did. What do you, do you have any like to shine on the fandom and, and what it is about this music? I mean, I, I, I agree with everything that's been said already about it. It's definitely, you know, all of these are all points, but it's, it's, um, I mean, yeah, it's, just as a listener, it it does seem like an area that people are, it's easier to accept divorced from the picture. Whereas like you don't hear a lot of conversations about a scene not being very, th an action scene, not being very thrilling without the score. You don't really hear those discussions too often. It's, but I mean, how many times have people talked about the psycho shower scene without the music and so on where it's, it's really being so integral that it just is one of those things that holds it holds the mood open if you play this outside of the film it can create the same feelings as during the film so i i just think that's just another reason why it's it's especially as fans it's a feeling you can replicate without watching or i i hear a lot about your writers writing while listening to while listening to horror scores because the the atmosphere just kind of sets you up to be in a certain place whereas i suppose that's true of anything but i guess um it just seems to fit very naturally in this genre i hear that a lot too writers will say you know i was listening to these three cues while i was writing the entire time i agree that happens a lot that's true yeah, very true i wonder if it's uh, something that uh Harry, we talked a little bit about years ago when, when we did the first book, which is, you know, maybe it's, it's that it's fear, it's fear itself, that, it, that, that fear itself is so primal, that it's, it's such a primal uh, feeling and instinct that it is, it itself kind of lends itself to having that sense memory in the music be, be something that is able to bring that up. I think it burns, it burns something on your psyche. I, I mean, it, it, you know, we can get, crazy esoteric here and try to like Richard says I don't even know we don't know the answer all we know is that a their horror fans are are the most amazing people and there are tons of them and that horror, horror music is different than other scores and somehow or other horror movie music attaches to the film and attaches to the character in ways that other scores don't necessarily do. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. I, uh... you know, the one, the one thing that that Tony Randall album, I'll never forget. <laughs> <the> <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm rushing out right now to. Uh... He sings Broadway hits. That's, Damn that's it. the one. That's what that's what happens when you don't have any older brothers or sisters to give you their Pink Floyd records or their Led Zeppelin records. And and when you're when you're six years old and you're trying to learn and you only have a snare drum and you're taking snare drum lessons in first grade, and the only records in the house are your parents' old records that they never <laughs> listened to. And you're hoping you can find anything with a beat that you can practice your snare drum to in your first year. 
unfortunately, the Tony Tony Randall singing "Welcome and Bienvenue, Welcome." <laughs> In cabaret, well, I'm, I'm going to go find my Lauren Green connection, uh, connection <laughs> right now of yeah. songs that he spoke, like uh, I love Bill Shatner. Oh, well, the Bill Shatner album is is worth the greatest gold. <laughs> oh, you should you, you should hear the Lauren Green. Oh my God. Well, we'll talk about really? that next time. That's what the next. <laughs> We'll do, a, we'll do a whole panel just about that. <laughs> all right. But uh, as you guys all know, I love talking to all of you. I've been lucky enough to meet so many amazing composers, and I've spoken to all of you for hours. And uh, this is always a great treat. And I hope that horror fans uh, enjoy uh, this panel and appreciate the time you guys put into both the work and communicating with the fans and doing stuff like this. So. Make sure that everybody uh, follows these wonderful people on social media and and uh, make sure you keep abreast of what they're doing in the future projects. And uh, my name is Jay Blake Fischera. And, of course, check out Scored to Death. Uh, thanks to Charlie, Holly, Richard, Harry, and Joseph. And uh, thanks to the Salem Horror Fest for having us. Thank you. Bye, all. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.